The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Good morning. My name is Casey Shaw, and I have the privilege of serving as pastoral associate here at Parkwood. And it is a joy to be with you this morning. What a joy it was to celebrate together as God's people, our risen Lord last Sunday. And what's even more joyful is that we can come back this Sunday and celebrate him again, because he's still risen. He still reigns. And he will so forevermore. We never stop celebrating the resurrection of our King. He still has more work to be done. And so that's what we're gonna look at this morning because he still has more in store for us. So Luke 24, verses 13 through 35 is where we're gonna be this morning. I invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, I encourage you to find a Bible in the chair in front of you. And we are on page 885 in that Bible. I wanna pray for us and then we'll dive into the story together. Father, I I ask you this morning to do what only you can do. And that is open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. You are sovereign over the eyes of our heart. And I pray that you would watch over your word and you would perform it. You would cause us to see the glory of your son revealed in your word. And you would cause us to treasure him above all. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So how many in the room are the proud wearers of glasses or contacts? A lot of people. 9.30, no one raised their hands. They just didn't clue in. Those of you who don't wear glasses or contacts, you're missing out on the illustration. You're not missing out on life, but you're missing out on the illustration, sorry. But it's true when they say you walk out of the eye doctor for the first time with your new spectacles on and there's leaves on the tree. That is true. Those of you wearing glasses, like, yeah, mm -hmm." mm-hmm. A guy after the last service said, what does it mean if I don't wear my glasses? I'm like, you're missing out, man. I don't enjoy wearing glasses, but when you walk out for the first time and you see, like, wow, I have really been missing out on life. I've really been missing out on all that God's beautiful creation has to offer. Like, there are leaves on the tree. That red sign says stop. And the speed limit actually has a number on it. The grass is grassier than it was before I had my spectacles. Uh, It is just new insight into this world. And and that's what Jesus is going to do in this passage. I pray that he gives us new lenses through which to see the Bible. 
Jesus-centered lenses, gospel-centered lenses through which to read the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. And some of you read the Bible through the lens of the gospel already. But if you're like me, I didn't see that the Bible was about Jesus until only several years ago. I was sort of bored with the Old Testament. Maybe you're bored with the Old Testament. Maybe you're bored with the Bible. But then when I realized that the Bible is about Jesus, the Bible is building in anticipation for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, it comes alive like never before. And that's Jesus' intent in this passage. The main idea that we want to see this morning is Jesus Christ clearly explains the accomplishment of redemption from the scripture. That's what Jesus is gonna do for us this morning. So I wanna set up the story in verses 13 through 16, and then we'll dive into the first point. Look, look with me, verses 13 to 16, Luke writes, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Now, a few things to point out as we set up the story. That, it says that very same day. So this is the same day as the resurrection. Luke is connecting this account with the resurrection account. The same day Jesus approaches two of his followers on the road to Emmaus, which is about seven miles from Jerusalem on that same day. Now, not much is told about these two disciples. One of them is named Cleopas and the other is not named. There's some speculation as to who these people are, uh, but we really don't, we don't know. We don't know a lot about them. What I love about this is that these are the two people known to us that Jesus first reveals himself to in his resurrection body, which is so cool because these two people are just, Average Joes, no names, and Jesus reveals himself to them first. Jesus is concerned with people who are no names, average Joe people like us, and Jesus comes up alongside them on the road to reveal himself to them. I love that. And it says in verse 16 that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is called a divine passive. God is keeping the eyes of their heart closed. He is not allowing them to recognize Jesus in this situation. Now God has purpose in this, which we're gonna see unfold in the story, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus engages them in conversation. In verse 17, he asks, What's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? What are you guys talking about? And it says they stood still looking sad. This question from Jesus causes them to stop in their tracks and you just see their grief and their sorrow. They stood still looking sad, which leads us to our first point. Jesus, by these disciples, is sorrowfully misunderstood. Cleopas answers him in verse 18. He says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I love his question to Jesus. In other words, the cross is pretty well known in Jerusalem. People know about this, man. Where have you been? 
You've been under a rock? He has actually. But he knows and he plays dumb. I love Jesus's response even more than Cleopas's question. What things? What things happened? Jesus is purposefully playing dumb. He knows what things. The things here are the most traumatizing things that have ever occurred. And he experienced them. Now these disciples were witnesses to them, but Jesus plays dumb because he wants them to understand these things, not just witness them. He wants them to comprehend the events that have occurred in Jerusalem, not just be a witness to them. And so the disciples' misunderstanding of the real Jesus has led them to two things, sorrow and confusion. I want us to first see their sorrow. Verses 19 to 21, Cleopas responds back to Jesus' question and he says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And hear their sorrow here in verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. So why are they sorrowful? They were sorrowful because Jesus was not the savior that they were looking for. He's dead. A Messiah who would come to suffer and die did not make sense in their Jewish minds. For them, the Messiah was to be anointed by God, favored by God. And they know, based on the Old Testament, that anyone who is hanged on a tree is cursed by God. He can't be the Messiah if he is cursed, if he's dead. For them, they're done. While they loved Jesus and considered him a friend and a prophet, they are done with Jesus. There's no following Jesus for them. There's no such thing as Christianity in their minds at this point. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, but he's dead. Therefore, he's not. Sidebar, one of the things that people have argued to explain away Christianity is that the resurrection didn't happen, that Jesus' disciples stole his body from the grave and made the whole thing up. I just don't think that's a very good argument because for these disciples, they're not thinking that at all. They're walking away from Jesus. They're done with Jesus. They're not walking to Emmaus thinking about how they can somehow come up with a resurrection story to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't think he's the Messiah. We had hoped he was, but he's not. And here's what these disciples do not realize, which the reader does, which we can, is that the supposed ruin of all their hopes is actually their fulfillment. What they see, the cross, as ruining and devastating their hopes is actually fulfilling our hopes, is actually the work of redemption. 
He really is the redeemer. But they're not only sorrowful, they're confused. Verses 22 to 24, they go on to say, moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So for them, the testimony of the women and others does not lead them to to think resurrection. They're not compelled to think resurrection here. They are only further confused. The news of the empty tomb only further complicates their sorrow. Now, Jesus has told them over and over again, I'm going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. He did all those. I'm going on the third day to be raised from the dead. But they're not thinking at all. So Jesus Enter scene two, Jesus speaks up. Jesus lets them share their sorrow. He lets them share their grief. He lets them share their doubts, their discouragement, their despair. He lets them honestly pour out their hearts and he doesn't abandon them. He doesn't walk away from these disciples. He lets them do it. And then he graciously and patiently responds. Our next point, Jesus is systematically explained Verses 25 to 27, Jesus is now going to bring clarity in the midst of confusion and sorrow, which he always does. He always does. I want us to see three things in these verses. First, his rebuke, Jesus's question. Secondly, and then third, Jesus's exposition. First, notice Jesus's rebuke in verse 25. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Key word right there is all. Jesus's rebuke is a gracious statement of basically, you don't believe the whole Bible. You might believe some of the Bible, but you don't believe all of the Bible. You don't believe all that the prophets have spoken, which leads him to ask his Second, or pose this question, was it not necessary that the Messiah suffer and then enter into his glory? The key word in that sentence is necessary. Was it not necessary? Did it not have to be so that the Messiah would suffer? This is a quote from William Hendrickson. The trouble with the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus's day was that on the whole, in reading the Old Testament, they saw only the glory and victory of the Messiah, not the fact that the path to these blessings was one of suffering. They just missed that. They overlooked clear passages such as Isaiah 53, which clearly outlined the suffering of the Messiah. And Jesus says, was it not necessary that the Messiah suffer? And then Jesus goes on to verse 27 to explaining himself from the scriptures. Verse 27 says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there for that one? Best sermon ever preached right there. 
verse 27. We don't know what, what he says. Luke doesn't record that for us. So I'll, I'll do my best to try and convey what Jesus is getting across here. I want us to notice a few things about verse 27. They still don't know who Jesus is. I find this fascinating that they don't know who Jesus is. I was thinking this week, if I were Jesus, I would have skipped the seven mile hike. All right, just, we're not doing that. I've, I've hiked Crowder's Mountain. I don't need to do it again. It's beautiful, by the way. I would have skipped that and just been like, hey guys, here I am. I know you're about to walk seven miles, but let's just cut to the chase. I'm right here, alive and well in all my glory. Go and make disciples, amen. That's what I would have done if I were Jesus. You probably would have too. I mean, he is alive right there physically in front of them. But instead of saying, here I am, he says, here I am. He opens the word. The word of God made flesh, John 1, 14, opens the written word to reveal himself to his disciples. That blows my mind. Jesus does not overwhelm these two disciples by some spectacular revelation of himself that imposes faith on them. Instead, he interprets the scriptures for them. The Bible is a big deal to Jesus. So much so that the physical Jesus, God in the flesh, uses it to reveal himself to his disciples. I've had people tell me before, I, I want to believe God, but he's just never really revealed himself to me. And on some level, maybe so, maybe you've never heard the gospel. And in that sense, he hasn't. But friends, we have God. God has revealed himself to us in his written word and it's sitting in your laps. Are you amazed by that reality? Some of us would probably say, I would just, I would listen if God would speak audibly to me in this moment. I'm just not much of a reader. I'm not either. But this is how God has revealed himself to us. John Piper said, if you want to hear God speak out loud, then open your Bible and read it out loud. I love that quote. God has revealed himself in his word. Notice secondly about this verse is that Luke doesn't identify any specific passages that Jesus uses. And here's what he's teaching, I think. That the whole narrative of God's dealings with Israel in the Old Testament unlocks God's purposes that culminates in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. What Luke wants us to see is that the entire revelation of God in the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi is leading us in anticipation for a redeemer who will be perfect, unlike us, who will suffer and die in our place and who will be raised from the dead, conquering our greatest enemies, sin, death, and hell. Jesus is that redeemer. When you flip the page to Matthew 1.1, Jesus steps on the scene. He is that redeemer and he is what the Bible is about. That's Luke's point and that's where Jesus is taking them. 
And I think we've gone wrong in, in our reading of the Old Testament like these disciples. A lot of times we will make Old Testament characters the heroes of, of the story. And we just think, well, I just need to be more like Abraham. I need, need to have faith like David. I just need to be more like Moses. Listen, they're not the heroes of the story. They are failures. They might be better failures than, our, than, than we are, but God does not set us free to be better failures. We're not called to be better failures. We don't need to just have better faith like them or sometimes we'll pull some nice verse out of the Old Testament and apply it to our lives in a way that it was never intended to be applied. The Bible is not about us. It's not a self-help book of quotes. It's about a redeemer who helps those who cannot help themselves. Tim Keller shared something in, his, in a sermon one time that I, I just, I have to share. And I, I believe it's one of the best written pieces explaining Jesus in the Old Testament that I've ever seen, that I've ever heard. So I, I have to share it with you. Um, and I imagine that in verse 27, when Jesus is unfolding to them the scripture, I imagine that Jesus communicated something like this. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who though innocently slain has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void not knowing whether he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve. So we like Jacob only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimately and heavenly one who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. 
Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain. So the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible is about Jesus, not us. And I imagine that Jesus communicated to these disciples something along those lines. I imagine that he walked through the Old Testament scriptures and unfolded to them. I had to go to Jerusalem. I had to suffer. I had to die. I had to hang on the tree. Yeah, I was cursed by God but not for my own sin, for your sin. But the grave couldn't hold him. I imagine that Jesus explained to these brothers that the Old Testament is about him, which leads to the next part of the story. Jesus is then seen and proclaimed, third point, I want us to see three things here in verses 28 to 35. First, the disciples urged Jesus to stay with them. 28 and 29, so they draw near to the village to which they were going. Jesus acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. What I want us to see here is that the disciples don't know who Jesus is yet, but they do know that they don't want to be without him. They want to be with this Jesus. They want to be with God. They don't know yet. Their eyes are about to be opened. That's the second thing I want us to see. Their eyes are opened to recognize Jesus as Lord as he breaks bread and interprets scripture. Look there in verse 30 to 32. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? It says their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. Again, this is another divine passive, just like in verse 16, where they were kept from recognizing him. Now their eyes are opened and they recognize Jesus. Recognition of Jesus and confession of him as Christ and Lord are not matters of human insight. We don't arrive there intellectually, but it's a matter of divine enablement. God opens their eyes to see Jesus. Now this happens as the Lord breaks bread and interprets the scripture. There are several thoughts as to why they recognize him in this moment. Some say they saw the nail scarred hands as he broke the bread and they realized. Others have commented that they were perhaps familiar with Jesus breaking bread in other instances and it caused them to remember But I think our takeaway right here should be that God chose to reveal himself to these disciples 
through the interpretation of scripture and the intimacy of fellowship. That's, that's how God chose to reveal himself to these disciples, through the interpretation of scripture and the intimacy of fellowship. God desires nearness with his people and God desires and does reveal himself by his word. Faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. And that is what Jesus has just done before them. Third thing we wanna see is that seeing the real Jesus revealed in scripture leads to overwhelming joy. Look at verses 32 to 35. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Notice their internal joy here. I love their statement there in verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us? As we talked with him, as he walked with us, and as he opened to us the scriptures. This is what Jonathan Edwards, famous preacher, he refers to this as holy affections. This is what they're experiencing in this moment. Notice that the specific occasion of their feelings is the presence of the Lord and the interpretation of the Old Testament, the expounding of the scriptures. That's what causes their hearts to burn within them. God's word rightly divided. And just a question for us this morning, does your heart burn within you as you hear the word of God rightly explained? Are you filled with passion when Jesus is exalted through the proclamation of his word? Are you stirred with holy affections when you comprehend the saving love of God in Jesus Christ? Hear me, nothing in the world should stir our affections like Jesus Christ rightly understood in the pages of scripture. We are stirred by such temporal, momentary things. And I fear that God's word does not stir us in the way that it should. I fear that for many of us today, we're, we're gonna be stirred more by the masters than we are by the word of God. The masters will come to an end. The man who wins today will experience momentary joy that will disappear and he will long for something more. But in Jesus, we have an eternal joy that never runs out. If your affections are not stirred by the Bible, the Bible is not your problem. Our affections are our problem. Our heart is our problem. Oh God, give us affections for you, for your word. Cause us to treasure your word. That should be our plea. These disciples, 
They share their burdened hearts openly and honestly with Jesus. He rightly divides the truth and their burdened hearts become burning hearts. And their internal joy becomes visible, shared joy. Notice that in verse 33, they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. They could not contain their joy. Their trek back to Jerusalem was not smart, was not convenient, was rather dangerous. William Hendrickson commenting on this verse says, so filled are these two men with joy that they must tell others. Have they already walked seven miles? Then seven more miles. Was it dark and dangerous? All of that means nothing now. This news is so electrifying and reassuring that the other disciples must know about it. Not tomorrow, but tonight. They must go. The disciples don't sit around and bask in the glory of their experience. They run to join the others and share what they have seen. Seeing the real Jesus revealed in scripture leads to overwhelming joy. So what? Two questions for us as we close. First, am I joyfully embracing the actual Jesus of the Bible? Not one that I've made up in my mind, not a Jesus made in my own image that I'm imposing on the scriptures, but the actual Jesus of the Bible. We really return to the question as, how do you read the Bible? What, through which lens are you reading the Bible? through the lens of yourself or through the lens of the cross. I'm gonna stop right there. Are you even reading the Bible? Because you can't embrace the actual Jesus of the Bible if you don't open the Bible, if you don't read the Bible. But as you're reading the Bible, are you reading the Bible focused on yourself? Are you reading the Bible focused on your problems? Are you reading the Bible focused on your expectations? Are you reading the Bible with presuppositions about who you think Jesus is and what you think he ought to do? Or are you reading the Bible with your eyes fixed on the Savior through the lens of the cross? Who is not only the Redeemer of Israel, but of the world who in fact was cursed on the tree, but not for his own sin, but for yours and mine. But he could take the curse. He could bear the weight of the wrath of God because he is the spotless lamb of God. So the grave couldn't contain him. It couldn't hold him. And three days later, he walked out. And the Bible is about that. The Bible is about Jesus Second question, do I practically live as if Jesus is really coming back? Do I practically live as if Jesus is really coming back? I ask that question because the disciples in this passage had heard over and over again that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem, that he is going to suffer, that he is going to die, and on the third day be raised again. But yet they're moping around as if Jesus was lying or he never said those things. They're moping in self-pity. They're going back home to just be depressed. The guy that we hoped was the redeemer is dead. And so 
they have no hope and they're not believing the word of God. This same Jesus has not only risen from the dead, but he's not over. He's not done. He is still at work and he has told us that he's coming back. Luke tells us in Acts 1.11, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus himself says in Revelation 22, 12 through 15, this is our growth group text this week. Jesus says, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. Blessed are those who embrace the actual Jesus of the Bible by faith so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. But those who reject the actual Jesus of the Bible outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Everyone who rejects the actual Jesus of the Bible and chooses instead of repenting of their sin to indulge in their sin. There are two groups of people. Those who at the return of Jesus will be overwhelmed with joy and those at the return of Jesus who will be overwhelmed with terror. And Jesus in his patience and grace has not yet returned because there are more that he has to enter into this joy. And how will they enter into this joy? By us living, practically living as if he's really coming back, which involves us actually embracing the real Jesus of the Bible and actually proclaiming the real Jesus of the Bible. Because as we actually embrace the real Jesus of the Bible. We are so overwhelmed by joy and knowing Jesus that we cannot help but proclaim the joy in knowing Jesus. And we plead, God, open eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Open eyes so that the lost in this city and in cities all across the world may see the glory of Jesus because he is still at work, friends. Easter is not the end. Easter is the beginning. And we have a great deal to do. My prayer for us is that we be so captivated by the Jesus of the Bible, the actual Jesus, the living Jesus, that we must joyfully proclaim him, that we must reorient our lives around the reality of his return in such a way that makes him look glorious to this world. He is worthy of praise. First Corinthians 15, three and four, I'll close here. Paul says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That is the point of the whole Bible. The gospel. 
Is this the point of our whole lives? Let's pray. Well, Father, I, I ask again that you do what only you can do, and that is open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Open our eyes to behold the glory of your Son. To rest in the finished work of the cross. To treasure Jesus above all things. God, you are worthy. You are worthy of our praise. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our lives. And so God, I pray that you would enable us to praise you with everything we have to leave this room totally changed I ask these things in Jesus name Amen Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church located in Gastonia, North Carolina Please feel free to share this message with others For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.